You're listening to The Perch Pod from Perch Perspectives. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of The Perch Pod. I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm the host of The Perch Pod, and I'm the founder and chief strategist of Perch Perspectives. Joining us on this episode is Andrei Sushentsov. Andrei is the president of Eurasian Strategies. He's the director of the Laboratory of International Trends Analysis at the Moscow State Institute of International Relations. Uh, he's the program director of the Valdai Discussion Club and also the editor-in-chief of the Foreign Policy Journal. Uh, for my money, I think Andre is one of the most perceptive and interesting Russian analysts of international affairs and especially on Russian foreign policy out there. I always call him when I have questions about Russia's place in the world and about the future trajectory of U.S.-Russia relations. And it seemed like there was never a more important time to check in on that all-important topic. So thanks, Andre. Uh, we had a great conversation. Hope you all enjoy, learn something from listening to it, and looking forward to seeing you out there. Tell me about this Russia-Saudi oil price war, because I feel like a lot of folks in the United States, and especially here in Texas, are confused by it. It kind of blindsided them. Um, the argument I've been making is that this really isn't targeted directly at U.S. oil producers. This is really just a result of there's a glut of oil supply. Russia needed to wean itself off of dependence on oil anyway. They're just making a move when it's best for them to make a move, and everybody else is going to have to figure out what they do. Of course, it all started before sort of coronavirus was a big deal. But tell me, tell me what, you, from your perspective there in Moscow or 40 kilometers outside of Moscow, what, what is the thinking on the oil price war? Why do you think it started and where do you think it goes forward here in the next couple months? It's true that uh, the major steps have been made in a different circumstances. The pandemic uh, effects have not been yet felt and it wasn't clear what would happen afterwards but uh, when the deal collapsed uh, it, I don't think it was aimed at the uh, United States at that time um, Russian government decided not to follow the pressure of Saudi Arabia who wanted to cut the levels um, even more and thus put additional pressure on the market and I think on American uh, uh, shale oil producers uh, uh, probably there is a calculus behind the Saudi move, uh, even though the media are covering that it, it was Russia to blame for the collapse. I, my perspective is that Saudi Arabia is actually opting at buying some of the American assets uh, in industry and uh, then coming back to the New Deal. Um, well, let's see what would happen next. Uh, my perception is that uh, at some point, maybe not so distant future, a new APEC deal would re-emerge with Russia and Saudi Arabia as a participants in this. There have been consultations between Russian and American governments on this, and um, it can happen that uh, Russia would indirectly um, assist the United States in getting the uh, oil prices back. Mm -hmm. um, it is telling that President Putin have... Um, been uh, discussing publicly that uh, Russian steps are not aimed 
at the American industry. And um, possibly it can lead to some level of cooperation between them. And uh, if it would be connected to the easing of sanctions, which I don't see as a probable development right now, mm-hmm. but uh, they can probably ponder upon this. Um, we remember that Rosneft has a, a major American partner um, and uh, that uh, it was on the table, like Rex Tillerson have been a frequent guest in Moscow uh, before joining the government, before Ukrainian crisis. And uh, it, it, it was discussed very broadly that uh, the two countries can actually collaborate in the oil uh, and energy uh, field generally. So um, I'm thinking that uh, Russia is not having a hostile intention toward uh, an American market. Currently, they just uh, were figuring out that uh, it, it was not pragmatic to follow the uh, Saudi proposal at that moment, and uh, they declined uh, the offer that uh, Saudi Arabia have made, and that and that led to a dramatic increase in uh, Saudi oil uh, extraction, and eventually led to the collapse of oil prices. So uh, it's actually very hard to blame. Russia specifically for what was uh, going on. Um, I think that Russian oil reserves and Russian um, uh, currency reserves permitted to withstand uh, difficult periods. Uh, it can be a pretty prolonged one, but uh, I don't think that uh, Russian government is interested to make it longer than uh, it can be. Do you think there's any well, first of all, it's it's very easy for the U.S. media to blame Russia for just about anything. So, and, and sometimes it's true, and sometimes it's not true. And I, I tend to fall more with you on this particular one. But you said there wasn't any hostility towards Russia. Do you think there was any hostility towards Saudi Arabia? I, mean, I know that Putin was trying to improve relations there in the past couple of years, but it, it seemed kind of like throwing down the gauntlet all of a sudden. Uh, and there, you know, those ties have been complicated because of Russia's sort of pragmatic understanding with Iran. So, h- how do you read? Russia-Saudi relations? Is it just a simple business disagreement or is there something more strategic there from Russia's perspective to undercut them? I think that uh, less, it, it's less an emotional um, relationship uh, than than media describes it. Uh, it was just uh, a bad offer, a bad business offer that, that Russia didn't take. Um, from Russian viewpoint, Everything is very practical. Everything is very pragmatical, maybe even cynical. And um, I think the dramatic increase in oil production is basically one of the only tools Saudi Arabia has to leverage its uh, international influence, basically. And uh, it used it at this point. Mm -hmm. I don't think that uh, it was a, a gesture of uh, hostility uh, from the Russian side. It was just uh, an obvious objection from the strategy, which didn't look like reasonable. Yeah, that makes sense. And then, but you also, you mentioned sanctions and you mentioned Rosneft and I, you can't mention those things without kind of going into Venezuela a little bit. So talk to me a little bit about, you know, Rosneft divesting itself, quote unquote, from Venezuela and, and is our Russia-Venezuela relations, are they going to break? Is Russia trading them for something else? Is this just you know, putting 
a new name on something and everything goes on as usual? How, how does Venezuela play in here? I think that it, it is a less geopolitical issue rather than technical issue for Rosnia to avoid uh, either new sanctions or permit itself to be open for some engagement with um, American partners. And uh, I think it would be just, uh, well, it's clear that uh, in terms of the business uh, affairs, Venezuela is currently experiencing one of the toughest periods uh, due to American pressure, internal disunity, and all other complications, including pandemic. And um, there is very little expectation that uh, this connection can deliver economically. But speaking geopolitically, I don't think that uh, Russian government would... Uh, drop support for the Maduro government and uh, what was made was probably is better probably assessed as a rather technical step and uh, I think more details can come up from the expert in uh, an expert in in in, in this area but uh, my assessment is it was rather more technical than geopolitical Has COVID-19 and the coronavirus pandemic, has it broken your forecast for the year ahead in any significant way? Or has it actually accelerated things in your forecast for the year ahead? How do you read you know, those predictions that you made roughly around January? How have those been affected by what's happened in the world in the, in the last couple of months? So we started with the idea, what would happen if all our premises about how the world is structured and what are the general trends and uh, threats to nation states uh, would come under such a significant stress that would make irrelevant uh, classical um, alignments, classical assessments of um, benefits and uh, uh, problems in relations with other countries. And uh, we were thinking about some ecological disaster that, that can happen. We were thinking about the migration uh, a more long-term trend, like what would happen if um, South Asia or Africa were started moving um, to the north, to Europe or to Russia? What would happen if, say, Russia has almost um, 1,046,000 uh, citizens? What would happen if like 15 million newcomers would join the country uh, from, from the south? That would be a dramatic shift. Um, how would this affect? Uh, of course, this is a very long-term scenario that would possibly emanate uh, maybe in, in decades. But uh, this type of thinking has uh, prepared us to be open for a contingency that is absolutely not on the table. And even though this type of event that we're experiencing, a pandemic, was was on the table, like it's always on the table, we were experiencing pandemic, but uh, you can never know when exactly. It's a time bomb that, that can you know tick for a very long time. And when it happens, like we were um, uh, dropping a message to one another, not having an ability to meet one another, that's uh, okay. I think like that was possibly what, what we were thinking about it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think since our forecast is, um, has this sense, underlying sense, so let us consider what would happen if everything we knew would become irrelevant. I think it is still a very good read now. It is um, 
I think it's triggering this uh, intellectual induction in a reader. When you read it and you are disagreeing with it or you're agreeing with it, it makes you think and it makes you kind of um, develop a, a mirror image of the world uh, to the one that we described in this document. So uh, it can put a person in a position that, okay, I don't agree with you on this, this and this, but it triggers me to think about this deeper and develop my own hypothesis about it. And that is a good thing that you've done. Yeah, I, I think that's, it's, that's really well put. And I, I specifically wanted to ask you about um, kind of what your perspective is on how, well, maybe on a couple of different countries in, in terms of dealing with the pandemic. So has how, let's say, Russia, China, and the United States has dealt with the coronavirus pandemic has it told you anything unexpected about those three countries? Has it changed um, any of the overlying long-term strategic factors that you were thinking about of those three countries? I know, for instance, that you were thinking, um, you know, when you guys wrote, the, the Democratic uh, primary race was still wide open. Uh, now, ironically, even though Bernie has been warning about this sort of thing for decades, I think people have rushed to Biden as sort of the consensus candidate. And it seems to me he's going to be very, very competitive with Trump. Um, so j just talk to me a little bit about those three countries in particular and, and how you read their reactions to COVID-19 and maybe what that tells you about um, the forecast that you made in the first place and whether you have to change or whether you think those forecasts were, were pretty accurate based on the information you had at the time. Speaking about China, we see that their response to this uh, pandemic was pretty effective. But probably they are the only one who can permit this, themselves such a swift, rapid, and very uh, deep and comprehensive, uh, uh, basically, blockade of part of the country. And uh, this also, what helped them is the ability to mobilize resources, enormous resources they have, like doctors from throughout the countries, uh, the volunteers or not have been brought in to assist uh, specific regions of the country. And eventually, they, if the digits that they provide are correct, which some question, um, it looks like that uh, they managed to um, pass this situation rather rapidly, comparing to some European cases. And uh, let's see what would happen with the United States. There, our forecast about the election was that um, if so Donald Trump has much bigger chances than a Democratic uh, contender if no significant economic crisis would happen and if Democrats would not unite behind the strong, charismatic leader. And we describe Biden as not that charismatic and not that strong. And uh, our eventual um, uh, assessment was that uh, Trump has a much higher hand. The pandemic has uh, had a following impact. Like we saw that American public has um, withdrawn support from Bernie Sanders, who probably most of uh, the Democratic Party have decided to be um, less reliable, less constructive, and maybe less mainstream than is needed in a situation of crisis. And that is very typical political situation when people tend to vote experimentally when everything is okay, economy is uh, delivering good results, and uh, you can permit yourself a, a vote of, uh, you know, 
unfavoring the mainstream candidate. But when a crisis, significant crisis erupts, you tend to focus on a candidate that is seen more classical, more mainstream, and uh, radiates uh, respect and radiates certainty um, that um, this candidate would, would, would make this crisis less severe. And uh, I think the Biden campaign is currently uh, stressing the point that they would react to the pandemic differently from Trump administration and they would do it better. And probably that's a good, good argument. Um, although in this situation of the crisis, I think Trump has a um, good situation to, to show himself as a forceful leader of a besieged country. And uh, it's, it, it, it is interesting how he brands this virus as a Chinese uh, disease. So it's an external threat to a country that we need to defend by American means. Um, it looks like by the numbers in the polls that uh, he is getting more support currently from his um, establishment and, and from the Republican voters. And uh, a lot will depend on how he will handle it if the administration would eventually relaunch the economy by the uh, voting time, if the uh, digits of the uh, victims of this pandemic would not be that fearful. Uh, I think he has a very good opportunity to lead the country out of this crisis victorious. But uh, it is an open question, and in Russia we also um, just um, in the beginning of this very large surge in, in, in numbers of, of, of death toll, um, the general numbers in Russia are less than 5,000. We're speaking now, it's um, April 8th. So um, it is a relatively small number compared to some middle European countries like Czech Republic. Um, but uh, for several uh, Consequent days, we had a number of infected, 1,000 and more. So uh, we we are currently in a stage where a major surge is is, is uh, starting. What you mentioned about how um, President Trump has tried to externalize this threat as if it is the Chinese flu or the Chinese virus. And Americans can't agree on much these days. But one thing Americans are agreeing on is that China has played a negative role in this and is playing a negative role in the world. Um, I think that's not a very good thing from the perspective of global stability, uh, for great power relations, for how the world is going to operate here in the coming years. But I just wanted to ask you, is there any of that similar backlash inside of Russia? I mean, on the one hand, we can all admire the way that China has cracked down on coronavirus once it knew what was going on and the way that it has managed to open up Wuhan in kind of record time. It's got the factories going again. It's very, very impressive. And as you said, it's impressive in terms of the resources they were, they were able to marshal, uh, the, decisiveness, the decisiveness of the government once it got involved. But the, the flip side of that is they knew something was up probably since early December, certainly since early January, and they were telling everybody they had everything under control, and they didn't. So I'm not, I'm not saying that you know China is... The great Satan here by any means, but certainly China has some culpability. And unfortunately, that has accelerated an anti-China bias in the United States. Is there any anti-China sentiment in Russia or in the circles that you're in that sort of admires China on the one hand, but blames them uh, for being a little, playing this a little bit too close to the vest, you know, kind of covering up the things that they knew early on? 
Or is it generally just, a, no, China did a really good job and every country sort of has to work this out for themselves and those that didn't, you know, they, they should have done better. This isn't China's fault. Well, there is a discussion here and um, it's actually an open question. What would uh, any other country as a source of this pandemic would do? Like if it would be Russia or United States or some African country or European country. Like the Netherlands, for example, vast uh, transport hub. Um, what would it do? Uh, for how many weeks it would deny that uh, the situation is uh, out of control? Uh, states generally tend to stress that they are capable in um, managing crises that are emanating from them. And uh, I'm not sure that uh, any other. Any other country would would do uh, differently than China. Um, like, can we blame Chinese for having peculiar tastes regarding the yeah uh, regarding some 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 species that are more prone to deliver this 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 threat? Well, I think it it it, it can be an open discussion. And um, I, I, I just uh, comfort myself with the idea that things happen and um, it can emanate from anywhere else. Regarding the Chinese response to this, um, here in Moscow, people were actually seeing it pretty harsh in the beginning. So uh, the, the first um, assessment was probably there um doing not a you know not what a normal state do but eventually when numbers started to grow particularly in europe uh the consensus went that uh, it was a proper way of uh, behavior in the this type of crisis mm -hmm. and uh, in here in central eurasia russia is central eurasia most of the cases were imported not from china but from europe uh, Russian tourists or wealthy people from elites coming from their houses in Italy and Switzerland, uh, they were the first infected. And um, it's basically having a kind of a, this, you know, el elite type of um, uh, the disease of the elite, eventually. Mm -hmm. People who are using um airports who are who are going for vacations um in, in luxury places uh, up in the hills in italy and then switzerland uh, so that was kind of a you know class image of this disease until it uh, eventually uh, you know developed into a uh, much much bigger scale here in the country so um no i don't think that we have a kind of a backlash uh, regarding china um more of a backlash i think uh, would come to the measures of russian government uh, like people particularly small and medium businesses blaming the government that you are not supporting us enough you are forced us to close our activity and you're forcing us to actually pay full salaries to the workers um how that can happen so a lot of people would go bankrupt and actually will have health issues also and uh, some claim that it can deliver much more deaths than the pandemic itself. How do you how do you think the Russian government is going to deal with that? Do you do you feel like 
the Russian government has a handle on things, or you sort of mentioned in the autumn that you, you felt like there might be a social and political backlash. How serious a backlash do you think we're talking here? Or does that just depend on how things develop over the course of the next few weeks and months? Well, we see now that the government is more concerned that uh, the those people who are not entrepreneurs who um, live from salary to salary for them to be secured and safe and uh, government can directly help them uh, there is a list of measures that is currently being produced so no single big russian enterprise is um, is closed uh, people have resumed to working um, you just cannot use the service like you cannot go to restaurant you cannot go to to cafe you cannot c cut your hairs and that is uh, like non-governmental businesses mm -hmm. and um, it can happen that uh, those people who who are left without jobs would be much better than entrepreneurs who should provide this job because uh, until now we don't see um, a significant uh, government effort to support this business even though uh, like we're speaking it's in uh, april 8 uh, maybe we have not yet announced those measures and maybe they would come uh, in the weeks but uh, for now speaking with my colleagues who run some of the businesses the situation is uh, not good and uh, their assessment is pretty pretty panical i would say so uh, some of them even say that you know this um, blackout can uh, be much more devastating than the pandemic itself. What does that look like in, in political terms? I mean, it, do you think that that panic is justified? And do you think that that will put significant pressure on the Russian government? I mean, or, or do you think that, um, that, that Russia will be able to, I mean, a lot of countries are going to have these small and medium businesses are going to be under severe pressure. Um, but do you feel like Russia is resilient enough to to bounce back from it whenever they're able to open up the economy a bit more? I think they like the general public support for the government would um, be retained because that is a major concern of the government. So they're paying people directly. I think uh, like a lot of small and medium businesses will go bankrupt, and that would. Um, um, enlarge the group that is critical to government in major cities um, and uh, that it can have an impact on the um, uh, public opinion poll it can have an impact in terms of the political activity in the cities so it can emerge like a party of the small and medium businesses uh, that is saying that you you basically betrayed us you didn't support us and uh, why don't you do not consider us to be to be a, a worthy of, of, of a rescue so it would it can happen it it it, it, it can happen if uh, no specific uh, plans on support would not be um, uh, described in, in in coming weeks but uh, i think that uh, still uh, we are not um, informed of all, all of the plans that the government is currently having. Let's get away from the sort of, you know, day to day or, or even the coronavirus um, impact. I know that obviously 
President Putin had those constitutional reforms that have been delayed, but you know they'll be passed eventually once once Russia gets back together and once coronavirus is behind us. But I wonder, and I, I hope President Putin lives for many years and many decades, and you know rides many horses without his shirt on throughout the throughout the ages. But I wonder, from your perspective, do, do you think about what Russia looks like after President Putin? Do, do you feel like the political structure is being too highly concentrated in him, or do you feel like Putin is actually setting up the system so that when eventually he is no longer either able or wants to govern, that there will be um, a cadre of leadership that will be able to take over and maintain maintain Russia. Do, do you think that's even in people's minds? And do you feel optimistic about a post-Putin Russia? Um, or, or do you worry about the concentration of power? I think that... Um... The, uh, the Russian political establishment have uh, come to an idea that uh, Russia is um, such a dramatic territorial body that to govern it, you need to be almost in an emergency mode all the time. Like Russia is one of the few countries that uh, have an, a ministry of, of, of emergency. Its fleet is uh, compatible to, uh, to its army, actually. So it's hundreds of planes of uh, trying to fix something going wrong in somewhere in, in some part of the country. Floods, fires, uh, you know, pandemic, all these type of things. And this actually makes it easier for Russia to say assist Italy currently. You know, sending mm-hmm. mi- military medicals, uh, me- medics uh, there because like it's nothing. Like we, uh, they they um, send almost one one twenty of what they have. And uh, they are currently sending these troops to Serbia also. Um, so uh, they consider Russia as a particular, even though Europe, Asia, or Eurasian countries, uh, they don't consider it to be a European country anymore. Um, there was a, a, a romantic period in the beginning of the first decade of the 20th century when uh, there was an expectation that Russia can be part of European Union. There is no more such an expectation. And uh, if it doesn't exist, why exactly should we follow the the route of the countries which do not resemble us, which are much less complex, much less fragile, much less, um, much more governmental than Russia? Mm-hmm. So the political system that is focused uh, on mobilization of resources, of uh, maintaining political stability, of uh, investing in um, defense and uh, major state-owned um, enterprises, the political sta- establishment has decided that that's the way how you govern the territorial body of this size, 11 hour belts. They can be wrong, and. Uh, but that is uh, how the Russian political experiment is um, going on right now. And uh, we can say that those people who are currently in the establishment, they have passed through different experiments. Like in the 90s, country was governed differently. And uh, in the general public opinion, it was one of the times of troubles. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the European Union, and that was one of the things I wanted to ask you about, because I think the European Union has reached its... It's it's big crisis or it's big inflection point. I I personally feel that if 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 the European Union does not come together now in response to this this crisis, I don't see how they're ever going to come together. I think they have a big opportunity to you know, make the European Union a real classically geopolitical entity, 
And if they don't, probably it fragments. Um, from your perspective, how do you read what's going on in Europe right now? Obviously, Russia's helping Italy out. And you know we've all seen the videos of the Russian military going in and out of Italy, which has been uh, amazing to watch, honestly, for, on a lot of different levels. But so what, how do you assess the European Union? Do you think there's a future there? Do you think it's going to unravel inevitably? Um, and in either one of those scenarios, what does that mean for Russia? Does Russia prefer a stronger European Union? Would it prefer a more fragmented Europe where it has different relationships with different states? How, how, how is Russia going to, how is Russia going to um, negotiate that going forward? Actually, we're asking the very same questions to ourselves right now. Like we are developing a, a, a report on this issue and um, a lot of of those questions are open to us. Um, it's clear that European Union is not working as a single and forceful entity in responding to this crisis. We don't see the volunteering medics from Germany coming to Italy to help us. We don't see the European, you know, fund, uh, financial fund to support and relieve Italy and Spain. Uh, we see quarrels between countries uh, regarding the medical equipment, uh, who ship what to where and why exactly these Chinese medical equipment lands in, in Czech Republic rather than Italy, where it was, you know, designed to go. And uh, those situations are, of course, um, very descriptive and uh, metaphorically uh, show what exactly European Union right now. And um, if that is a major trend of European Union development, then we are seeing a disarray that would uh, lead to a collapse of the political unity inside Europe. Uh, another scenario can develop if uh, leader countries inside the bloc would resume assume responsibility for what's going on in terms of the pandemic reaction. Mm -hmm. um, it can be Germany, it can be Germany and France. It can actually happen to be a European Commission, which is um, kind of uh, looking not effective in this situation. Um, and that's probably the moment when it should be looking effective, but uh, it looks like the institutional design of European Union was not um, constructed to respond to crises like this. It was a peacetime, uh, flourishing time, political design for everybody to live together peacefully and forever. And uh, it looks like the either European Union should develop a crisis mode a crisis political institution inside itself or it would collapse an open question what kind of europe is a good thing for russia mm -hmm. we would like europe to be a friendly we would like to have a proper good trade economic human relations uh, we don't want the visa issue to be a problem in connection between us we want Europe to be self-reliant in terms of security. Um, and uh, it looks like Europe would not be ready in a foreseeable decade or maybe two to um, to stop its dependence on the United States support. United States is still a major holder in the European security architecture. And this architecture basically um, have 
a feature that it doesn't include Russia, or it would be better put, it excludes Russia. And uh, while it develops and spreads, it simultaneously produces tensions on Russian border. Um, so this is a constant source of frictions and crisis, as we saw in Ukraine. Uh, can it change? It's a very open question if it can. And if it would change, like let's imagine the United States is self-absorbed and uh, not focusing on Europe anymore, basically saying, guys, now do what you want. We're out, we're defending like the Pacific, the major contender is China, and we have little interest on what's going on. Like who exactly would be a security provider? Um, if uh, European Union would collapse, and uh, but still you will have several major countries inside the bloc like germany and france and great britain um would they unite and then you know be a force projector for the bloc or they would try to find a way to negotiate with russia let us construct a continental bloc of some sort um or you know new tendencies uh, like Europe become much more securitized and uh, all those tensions that uh, have been always there for centuries there between neighboring countries would reemerge. That was also one of the scenarios that uh, John Mearsheimer was, was writing in his famous article in 1991, why we will soon miss the Cold War. That would not be a perfect thing for Russia, actually. Like we... Uh, are good that we have a relatively peace and stable border at least part of it uh in the west and uh to consider europe as a potential source of military threat is not what we would like to have uh there is actually a joke between experts here that you can actually imagine a situation when you would be missing united states as a security provider in europe yeah yeah careful what you wish for I, I think that might be coming sooner rather than later but that, that gets me to my kind of the last big picture question i wanted to ask you because yeah i mean if, if if that europe scenario develops in a negative way i can see how that would be very bad for russia but it also seems to me at the sort of broadest level geopolitically things are going fairly well for russia right now i mean you have china and the united states basically locking themselves into a competition globally um and that sort of allowed you know the United States and China are basically Russia's two biggest geopolitical challenges, as I see it. So, and if you have your two biggest potential challenges facing each other rather than occupied with dealing with you, that's a good thing. That that frees Russia up to think about what it wants to do in Europe. Maybe it frees Russia up to develop some more pragmatic relationships with Turkey, with India, some of these other countries. Um, so, just tell me from the sort of broadest level, um, do you feel good about where Russia is situated? strategically do you feel uncomfortable about it are, are there any countries whether it's china or the us or or turkey that you're particularly worried about that's going to pose a significant challenge to russian foreign policy going forward or do you think that um, the challenges are manageable and that you see a path for russia to deal with them what, what's the top level view for you of course the current situation is not ideal and uh, a lot of sacrifices have been made a lot of strategic options have been closed um, of course russian leadership would like to have peace and friendship on the planet 
having perfect relations with Europe, with the United States, with China, with um, its southern neighbors, India, etc. And uh, what is uh, at hand currently is not optimal in many, many instances. Um, a lot of efforts have been put into implementing a grand strategy toward United Europe, Europe from Lisbon to Vladivostok. It failed. And uh, it was implemented, basically, this political course was implemented by the same people who are currently in government, by the same president, same prime minister. Well, Dmitry Medvedev was at that time prime minister. Um, and uh, basically, those people have changed their minds because what they were believing in to be a proper choice for Russia failed Russia, failed Russian interests. Um, what we have is not optimal. Uh, sanctions regime, frictions uh, with NATO regarding Ukraine, this uh, Russia gate in the American politics is not optimal. Um, the American pressure toward Russian infrastructure, oil and gas project here and there. Um, that, of course, Russia would be very good without. On the other hand, you know, um, Closing those options, uh, it opened up new, new others. Uh, Russia is experiencing one of the best periods in history in its relations with China. It's a major neighbor and number one trade partner, speaking of the single countries, not uh, economic blocks like European Union. Uh, it has uh, resumed very forceful presence in the Middle East, where it's uh, a welcomed mediator and a significant player in terms of the hard power. It has uh, returned as a, a global power, basically, with interest in Latin America, in Africa, in South Asia, East Asia. And uh, I think that the Russian government is considering current Russian position as uh, being one of the top three countries on the planet as natural for Russia. So uh, maybe I would metaphorically describe it this. If that was the price to pay for maintaining global uh, presence and uh, if that was the way towards getting back to our natural position globally then let it be it mm -hmm. Do you, you said that russia china relations are at an all-time high uh do, do you think they can stay there i mean it seems to me that russia and china have some things in common especially you know rejecting u.s hegemony and trying to build a stronger, more integrated Eurasia. But there are a lot of places like in Central Asia, for instance, or energy prices, or you know, in a lot of different ways, Russia and China have reason to clash. If you just look you know, in the plain interest view of it, are you worried about that at all? Or you think that the current state of relations um, has some endurance that can continue on for years, that the understanding is, is viable? Well, Russia and China have experienced very different relations in the last 100 years. And uh, most of the time, it was either hostile relations or very, very tense. Um, what we have currently is uh, both the product of uh, geopolitics, uh, while Russia and China simultaneously are defending itself from the pressure from the United States and basically standing back to back uh, being neighbors and uh, bordering one another with the least develop, developed regions, which are very loosely connected to one another. That is one of the reasons why 
the, the pandemic came to Russia, not from China, but from Europe. Um, and it's also a product of the geo-economy, I would put it. Uh, Russian and Chinese centers of gravity are located uh, far away from one another. Uh, most of Russian GDP is produced in the European part of the country, and uh, most of its trade in volumes goes still to Europe. So uh, Russian focus in terms of security and economy is currently to the West, to Europe. Chinese center of gravity, demographically, economically, is located uh, near its Pacific coast. And uh, it is uh, turned to the east, to the United States, to Taiwan, to Japan. And uh, basically, two countries are uh, standing back to back, looking into different directions. And uh, in some way, until this structural situation is there, I don't expect the countries to become a problem to one another. Even though analytically we should be true to ourselves and observe the signals, what, uh, when, uh, what and when can happen wrong, and possibly one of those signals can be that, uh, say, China would start claiming territories from neighboring countries like Mongolia, who is squeezed between Russia and China, or some Central Asian states, or starting to pressure its. Uh, smaller neighbors in the south and uh, in, in the west. Um, but for now, Russian assessment, the consensus Russian assessment, I would say, is that we're experiencing a very positive, constructive relations with China. And um, we don't expect this to change for a decade. That's a good answer. I love the image of back-to-back of -back looking out in different directions. Andre, you've, you've been very generous with your time. Before I let you go, um, is there anything you wanted to talk about that I didn't bring up? Anything you wanted to ask me? Anything you want the listeners to sort of take away from? Or do you feel like we've covered it all? Well, I would actually be very interested in your perspective. How do you assess uh, would this pandemic change dramatically the way we live? Or it's just a flectation that is um, maybe it would uh, speed up some of the processes and trends that have been there? Or you would see that uh, this is a game changer? A black swan that would, you know, basically make a planet whole new. What do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, with the caveat that so much is changing, and and I'm I'm open to revising my position. But right now, I view uh, the pandemic as an accelerant, not as kind of disjunction or as some kind of uh, creating some brave new world. Um, that could change based on how long it takes to get a vaccine or whether it produces a political or social backlash um, in the world. Like I, I could see it changing, but right now what I really see it doing is I see it locking in long-term some things that aren't that good for the globe. I mean, I see it locking in U.S.-China strategic competition long-term. I don't think that was locked in yet. Certainly it was trending that way. I was pessimistic about U.S.-China relations, but they're set that way. And I don't care whether it's Biden or Trump. As a result of this pandemic, that's going to happen. Uh, same with economic decoupling. Um, I think you're going to see, you know, we sort of reached the high water mark of globalization and it was starting to recede a little bit. Uh, you were already seeing tech, you know, US tech companies reorienting some of their supply chains away from China and looking at Mexico and looking at India, looking at Vietnam. Um, that's all going to accelerate. And I think political reliability of supply chains for different blocks around the world is going to become paramount. 
I think you're going to see the development of some of those kinds of blocks. It's going to be an American block. What the European block looks like is going to depend on whether the Europeans can get their act together. It's not looking that great right now. Russia will have a block. China will have a block. Um, I think India is a really interesting question. Watching how they're going to deal with this is going to be fascinating. I feel very bad for the continent of Africa, especially sub-Saharan Africa. They just aren't equipped to kind of compete and deal with this world. I think we're kind of looking at a weird sort of new version of imperialism for them. Different people use them for resources or for connectivity or for markets or this, that, or the other thing. But not to get too long-winded, but I, I think it's an accelerant. I think we're locking in some of the tensions that were there and sort of they're going to become semi-permanent as a result of the pandemic. I think we're going to see economies decouple from each other. Um, I think that you know, certain industries are going to become matters of national security that nobody would have thought of before. I mean, just look at all this reporting around uh, the global supply chain, not even on any high advanced biotech, but just on getting Tylenol or on basic you know, generic drugs. When China shuts down or when India shuts down, the world shuts down. So suddenly you're going to see competition over things like you know, producing generic painkillers. Uh, you already saw the United States this week is, is making noise about space and how it's rejecting the idea of space as a global commons and it wants the you know, U.S. companies to use space for U.S. economic benefit. I think that's going to be a major flashpoint going forward. Um, so yeah, the COVID-19 accelerates those things. It locks some of those things in place. I don't see that by itself this pandemic is going to change anything. Now, part of that, though, is because it's not that deadly. I mean, it's horrible. It's creating horrible suffering around the world. But in some ways, this is a great wake-up call because it allows us to all say, okay, if this were like, God forbid, let's say smallpox came back, or let's say that we had a version of coronavirus 20 years from now that killed at a 30 or 40% clip. Um, if the world does not take the lessons from this pandemic and apply them, there will be more pandemics and you will, it will, future pandemics will destroy the world and will create a new world and, and all these other things. But I don't think COVID-19, based on what I'm seeing so far, is going to be the one. What do you think of that? I actually find myself in agreement. I don't assess that uh, what we see is um, a game changer. But let us see. I think by June we will get a proper picture when and if the countries will start to plateau on this um, disease, we will get a, a better understanding where we're going. Yeah, I'll also say, I mean, my, my take is also uh, assumes that there's going to be a vaccine, which is, that's the other reason it's hard for me to think of this as the black swan, because we're assuming within 12 months, you're going to be able to have a shot that's going to prevent you from actually getting this thing. If for yeah. some reason, you know, scientists fail to find a cure to this and we're stuck in social distancing forever, um, yeah, that, then the world really is going to change. I don't even know what that world looks like. Probably more like Blade Runner than mm. what we're living in right now. But, uh, but yeah. you know, knock, knock on wood, uh, it seems like everybody and their mother is announcing you know, some new vaccine trial. So hopefully by this time next year, we'll all be inoculated and we can get back to just the normal strategic competition in the world. Let's hope so. Find us on every major streaming platform under the name Perch Pod. Follow us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at Perch2020, or you can find us on LinkedIn under Perch Perspectives. You can also check out our website. That's perchperspectives.com. Take good care, and we'll see you out there.